Earlier this year, Sarah Fader, who is a 37-year-old social media consultant in Brooklyn, who has something called generalized anxiety disorder, sent a text to a friend in Oregon. The text was about an impending visit. And when a quick response failed to materialize, Sarah posted on Twitter to her 16,000-plus followers this statement. I don't hear from my friend for a day. My thought, they don't want to be my friend anymore. Then she added this hashtag. This is what anxiety feels like. Now following that post on Twitter, thousands of people were soon offering up their own examples under the hashtag. Some were retweeted more than a thousand times. You might say that Miss Fader struck a nerve. In an interview... She made this statement, if you're a human being living in 2017 and you're not anxious, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) She went on to say, it seems we've entered a new age of anxiety. The uh, Americans of 2017 can make a pretty strong case that they are gold medalists in the anxiety Olympics. Well, that made me think after I read that, what about me? What about you? Do you ever feel anxious? Do you ever feel like something's missing from your life? And you might initially think that question is about where you live or what you do for a living or what you study. But really, it's a spiritual question. It's like one lady who said, I never felt better in my life, and I think it's high time I did. We can't always name the cause of our restlessness but we experience it nonetheless. I believe it's because we are built for God and not for ourselves. And often that restlessness that we feel is God inviting us and drawing us back to this truth. We are not made for this life, but for the next. The famous Christian author C.S. Lewis once wrote, The Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. And so this morning, I'd like to explore with you just a little bit about the next world, that place that we are made for. Perhaps this morning we can get just a a little taste of heaven on earth as we read about the heavenly city of Jerusalem descending into a new heaven and a new earth. Our text comes from the book of Revelation in chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Now, the book of Revelation is primarily a a written record of a vision regarding the future and the end of time as we know it, experienced by the Apostle John in the first century. It's been carefully preserved in Scripture for us to read and learn from now all the way in the 21st century. So let's listen in to just a bit of John's vision. Beginning in verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. 
and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Now this passage from Revelation is near the end of the book, which is good for us today because all of the bad stuff has ended. Sinners have been judged and condemned. Satan and his evil demons have been thrown into the lake of fire. And it's now time for God to begin the rest of eternity with a redeemed people who have had their sin forgiven and stripped away. Folks, that's us. I hope you know that. One commentator summarized this passage well. He said, As the vision of the new creation continues to unfold in Revelation, the distinction between heaven and earth simply falls away. Heaven quite literally descends to earth, radically renewing it. In the process, all life on earth is restored to God's intent for it. Well, in this text, John provides us with several images to relate what this new heaven and earth will be like. And I'd like that to be our focus this morning, these three images that I've chosen. And the first image is this. The first image that John uses to describe heaven is a city. A city, but not just any city. This is the holy city of Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven. God has prepared it in the heavenly realms, and God now lowers it down to awaiting new earth. Here is a place for all its kingdom citizens to reside. Now, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus of Rome. The book of Revelation was likely written after this took place. So this means for John that any Jerusalem remotely as glorious as the city that he saw would have to be a new Jerusalem. Now the newness not only refers to the fact that the old Jerusalem was destroyed, but that the entire order of the world is being remade in John's vision. The old heaven and earth have passed away and God has ushered in a new era of peace and communion with God and mankind. Much as it was back in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. John says that it is a holy city. Holy means set apart for a special purpose. This city is different from any city John has ever seen. But what's so different about it? Well, for starters, it comes down out of heaven. This new Jerusalem doesn't just appear. It's brought to earth from the abode of God. John says that the city is made ready or prepared. Now, if this city is being prepared, and if indeed it comes to earth from heaven, you realize it's possible that 
the new Jerusalem is under construction in heaven right now? Just think about that for a moment. You might remember that not long before his death, Jesus told his disciples, including John, that he was going to prepare a place for them. John writes about that in his gospel, in the gospel of John in chapter 14. And so now years later, in his supernatural vision, this city emerges from heaven, prepared, made ready. And now here's what we, where we start to see what's really special about this city. Uh, the, the voice from the throne calls out, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they should be his people. And God himself will be among them. Now, to us modern folks, this sounds kind of like a, you know, a nice message that God's moving into our neighborhood, coming to hang out with us. But to the ancient people, this was a big deal. In, in those days, humans would actually build places where gods could dwell among humans. These places were called temples or tabernacles. Here in John's vision, this is very different. Instead of humans building a dwelling place for their gods, the one true God is building a dwelling place for himself among the people. Can you see how exciting that this would be for first century Christians as they heard about this from John? At this time, they were enduring terrible persecution, hardship, distress. Their lives were bleak. And as their anxiety and their restlessness increased, God provided a vision to remind them that Jesus is coming again and that he is bringing with him a city gleaming and brilliant and filled with the glory of God far, far greater than anything Solomon or Herod or Moses or anyone else could have imagined. What an amazing image. The city of God. But John's vision is so magnificent that just one image will not do. And so we move to another image, a second image in our text. <clears throat> the second image John uses to describe heaven is that of a wedding. A wedding. Now, ancient Hebrew weddings included three phases. First, there was the betrothal, what we might call an engagement. Except back then, breaking a betrothal required a divorce. That's how serious it was. Next, there was the presentation, a series of festivities that might last over several days, all leading up to the last phase, the ceremony which included an exchange of vows. I want you to think about something for just a moment. You realize that currently we are engaged to Jesus, so to speak? That someday you and I will be presented to him at what the Bible calls the wedding feast in heaven. And then will come the ceremony itself, which John describes here. The church of all true believers is adorned as a beautiful bride walking down the aisle toward Jesus, the groom. 
I can still remember that day, almost 27 years ago now, when my wife Sue, well, she wasn't my wife yet, but when Sue came through the doors of the sanctuary, all of our friends and family were gathered and they stood up. And how radiant she looked as she walked down the aisle to meet me. And I was filled with anticipation and fear, joy, and all kinds of other emotions. I think that's just the, the tiniest glimpse, the tiniest precursor of how God says his church of believers will be. Radiant. Radiant with all sins stripped away as we meet our groom, Jesus Christ, at the altar. Now, according to Jewish custom, the bridegroom would, would take his bride to live in an extension built on his father's house. That's still done in some cultures today. Back in John 14 that we, I mentioned earlier, when Jesus said he was going away to prepare a place, he also said to his, his followers, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? You think about that image for just a moment. Jesus there now, the master carpenter, preparing a place for you. What an image. A city. A wedding. Verse 3 carries one more image that we want to look at. A third image from John. It is that of a tabernacle. That tent-like house of God that predated the temple. If you remember back to the Old Testament, you'll remember that the Hebrew people actually carried this tent with them. This tabernacle as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It was built to the specifications that God had given them. And anywhere the nation of Israel went, the tabernacle went with them. In the tabernacle, of course, was the Ark of the Covenant in which the glory of God resided. The tabernacle was a sign to everyone that God was with this people. And now, thousands of years later, here at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, God promises to come down with the city. And he promises to tabernacle with us. That word tabernacle is important. The word is a noun, means a, a, a dwelling, an abode. As a verb, though, it means to be with, to hang out with. God will live with us. That makes me think about Jesus' title, one of his titles, Emmanuel, which means God with us. John, in his gospel, in the very first chapter, talked about when Jesus came to earth for that first time, that first Christmas. He wrote it in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling, it's the same word, tabernacle. Jesus came to dwell, to tent 
to tabernacle among people. But then he had to return to heaven. And so he sent his Holy Spirit to be in believers, to serve as a comforter, an encourager, and as a deposit, a deposit, just a little bit of what is to come. Someday, though, God, in his complete fullness, will dwell among us for good. We will belong to him and he to us. And so what, what will this be like with God living among us? Well, John describes it by telling us what won't be in heaven. He says in verse 4, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. At the end of time, as, as we know it, what will pass away is death itself. Eternity fully begins. Heaven has no regrets, no doubts, no pain, no loss, no sadness. You think about this. In heaven, there are no hospitals, funeral homes, cemeteries, ambulances. We won't have any need for those things, for God is making all things new. And so what will heaven be like? How can these images help us in our restlessness? How do they help us overcome the anxiety that fills this world that we now live in? As we visualize these heavenly images of the city, the wedding, the tabernacle, let me conclude by giving you not, not an image, but a word. It's a word that I think is suggested from verse 6. I want to say that heaven will be a place of fulfillment. A place of fulfillment. Where do we see that? Look at how God identifies himself in verse 6. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. These are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Alphabets are used for, for storing and conveying knowledge. So we might say this is another way of God saying, I am everything you need to know. Everything you need to know is wrapped up in God. And then God says, I am the beginning and the end. You see, God exists outside of time. The Bible begins with the phrase in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God was there before the beginning, and God will be there after the end. And when he initiates this new phase of eternity with a new heaven and a new earth, God will be there. You know, sometimes we say that time is the, the most precious commodity. You know, if you lose money, you can always earn more, but you can never earn more time. Once it's gone, it's gone. And yet, God reigns over time completely. He is the beginning and the end. And then lastly, God says that he will quench our thirst. Talk about fulfillment. To have your thirst quenched. He will give us water that is without cost from the spring of the water of life. You see, salvation is a free gift. It cannot be earned. This is grace, getting what we don't deserve. 
Someone once said that grace, G-R-A-C-E, stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, somebody had to pay for that free water. Jesus paid for it through his death on the cross. He paid the debt that you could not pay, that I cannot pay. Jesus told the crowds following him, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. On another occasion, he met a woman at a well and he offered to give her a drink of everlasting water. See, God alone satisfies our deepest needs. God alone gives eternal life. And heaven is all about fulfillment. In C.S. Lewis's novel, novels, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, in book seven, the characters who have lived in Narnia complete their mission there. And in a closing chapter that's entitled Further Up and Further In, Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus, has come for them to take them home. And they're leaving Narnia for good and they're entering Aslan's land. But there they encounter some familiar scenes. And one of the characters cries out, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Folks, I believe that when we enter the real heaven, we'll say something like, this is the land I've been looking for all my life. Though I never knew it until now. You know, the reason that we love some of the things in this world so much is because they look a little like heaven. Heaven will be new. A new heaven and a new earth restored and redeemed. It will be the place that you were meant to live. Truly, heaven on earth.